Seven billion humans on Earth can't all like the same drink. That's why Circle K has Polar Pop and Froster. Pick your flavors and make that one in seven billion mix just right for you. Polar Pop and Froster, just 79 cents each at Circle K. Limited time only at participating locations. Shut up and sit down. Topics and I'm just like totally no topic come to mind whatsoever. And I was thinking about something that happened to me earlier in the week, and that's why we have the topic we have today about being a creative person. Um, I met somebody new at the cafe, and um, somebody who uh, just really had no clue of me. And um, she, we were at the uh, the pastry bar, and I was trying to figure out which pastry I could have that wouldn't be a total disaster and um for, you know, my sugar and my diet. And I was like I kept staring and staring and staring and finally I got something terrible. It was a pecan twist. It was amazing. It was like melting in my mouth good, but it was really bad for my sugar. Um <clears throat> unless I even discussed the impact it had on my diet. Let's just put it this way, I had a salad for dinner. Anyways, I um, was talking to this lady, and inevitably when you meet somebody new, like in the first 10, 15 minutes of a conversation, unless you're meeting them at work, the first thing that you they're, they're going to be interested in knowing is, what do you do? And it reminded me of when I was much younger and um, I didn't have a husband to support me. <laughs> that sounds terrible. <laughs> That's not why I got a husband. I worked for five years into our marriage before I quit to uh, write or just be a domestic engineer. Um, and um, But so I, uh, I worked a variety of jobs, and um, they weren't – they were just to make money. I, I, and I never really had a job where it was a vocation, where it was like, this is what I'm meant to do. Um, and a lot of times creative people who um, write obsessively are reluctant to call themselves a writer. Uh, it isn't like when you have this drive to be a doctor or this drive to be a lawyer and it's your dream and, and you do it and you go through medical school and you become a doctor. And when that's a vocation, it's like something that you're just driven to do, something that's really – and you're proud of it. But when you're driven to be creative, when you're driven to be a writer or an artist, um, society can sometimes look down on you for it because um, – People don't really make a, make the kind of money. It happens. Like okay, you know, you have, you have J.K. Rowling, you have E.L. James for all that's worth. You have Nora Roberts. You have Stephen King, Nicholas Sparks. Some people make a living writing. Most people don't. 
unless they're writing like as a journalist in the news reporting or if they're writing for a technical writing company or if they're writing for a company as a technical writer you don't make a mu- you don't make a living writing i don't um <clears throat> my husband makes my living <laughs> sounds terrible, but there were a variety of reasons that I quit working um, outside of the home, among them health reasons, and um, so now uh, I work at home, and I write, and I bring home a little money, and that little money goes into paying whatever it has to pay, and um, that's what it is, but when you are a writer, um, it's when you say it, this is what happened with me and this lady. She said, she talked about being, um, she's a paralegal, and um, she works in the same law firm that my cousin Stan works in. And um, he had brought her over to the cafe because thought, he thought that maybe the two of us would, you know, get along because she um, has a really uh, vibrant personality. And the thing is, is when you have two people in a conversation that have vivid personalities, um, it can get really, <laughs> but she asked me what I did, so I told her, I said, I'm a writer, and um, she says, oh, what do you write? Well, that's the next question, that's what they always ask, what do you write? And I told her, and um, I said, you know, I, I write in a variety of um, genres, actually, and um, I, I told her the ones that I write in, and I said, and, you know, um, I talked about uh, writing in fantasy, and I talked about writing in science fiction, and I said, but, you know, Truth be known, most of my money comes from erotica. And she was really, really super interested in that. And Senna is right. The next question out of her mouth is, well, can I read some of your stuff? And I'm like, sure. So I pulled the business card out of my wallet because I do have them. Um, and I said, this is my website, and this is my um, pen name, and you can go on Amazon, and you can um, sh- um, sh- check out my books from there. I don't actually have any prints with me today, but, you know, if you come by next week, I'll try to remember to put one in my car for you. And so I offered to give her one of my print books, and she was really excited about that. And she left, and I was like, oh, that's fine, and, you know, we're cool. Cool. Everything's fine. Um, I'm sitting there about two hours later, and she comes back, and she <laughs> had gone to the bookstore looking for one of my books, and she had found one, and she wanted me to sign it, and that was really fun, and that was great. And um, after this was after she got off work, and so I was still there, and she um, talked to me about writing, and um, she said that you know when she was younger her dream was always to be a lawyer and that's what she's working towards and she asked me if it if it was my dream to be a writer and I said yes and then I was very lucky that I got the opportunity to pursue that because you don't make the kind of money that people think you make as a writer and so um a lot of people have the the drive to be a writer but they don't have the financial circumstances to to do so and there was an article or a blog maybe put out maybe earlier in the year it might have been last year where this man said that a lot um and it's this is this is very true and it's um it's there's a double standard in the writing industry um when it comes to writing um especially when it comes to writing romances that when women write romance Men write fantasy and, fantasy and science fiction. But here's something else that happens in the writing industry that might not be obvious to a lot of people. Most successful 
genre writers are female. And that's because, like me, they can stay at home and write and not have to work a lot and not have to work outside the home because their husband supports them in their dream. Whereas if a man stayed home to write and didn't make money, society would look down on him even if his wife fully supported this. So a lot of times aspiring male writers have to have a job plus their family and then they write when they can. Whereas female writers can often quit work outside the home. They have their kids. If they have kids, they have their fur babies, and they can write because their husband is more than willing to support their dream. So, yes, a lot of successful genre writers are female because they have the opportunity to devote themselves to writing. And those who don't write don't understand the amount of work that goes into producing a novel, which is a lot of times when people get upset when I update on their schedule. I'm thinking to myself, do you honestly think I'm pulling this out of my ass? Do you do you think I can sit down and just write 25,000 words in a day? Because that's not actually how it works. It really isn't. Even people who don't plot and who don't research and don't plan the way I do, don't who don't have my process, cannot pull a completed story out of their ass in a day. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, you can write a thousand words and complete. Okay, put that up. But we're talking about a novel here, and a novel is is work. It is work, and I, that's right, Azor. I am not porn on demand. <laughs> so you know, we were talking about work product and and um, you know. Uh, managing yourself at home and um, and all that stuff. And it was just a really interesting conversation to have with somebody who had no perspective on what it meant to be a writer. And I've been thinking about it all week, and it's just it's interesting. Um, but I used to not tell people I was a writer. When people asked me that question, well, what do you do? I would tell them my current job, whatever that may be, you know. Um, because writing is so super personal, And it's private. Um, And I didn't start telling people I was a writer until I got published. And then I felt like I had no choice but to own up to it, like to confess this this deep, dark secret I had kept for decades that, okay, yeah, um, I'm actually a writer. I work here, but that's not what I am. And so I think a lot of people, they leave high school and they go into um, the college environment thinking they have to find themselves and they have to pick a career that that suits them, that's their vocation. And not everybody has one. Not everybody, sometimes a job is just a job. It's it's just how you make money. It's it's not how you fulfill yourself as a person. It's it's not how you make yourself happy. It really is just a job. It's, It's how you make money. It's how you have money for food. And that's all it is. I mean, it really is no more than that. So for those of us who are lucky enough to have a um, a dream to to aspire to, who don't who it, it's amazing to to do what you love for a living. But um, if you can't, carving t- 
time out to do that for yourself is super important, not only to your uh, to your craft, but to your self image and to who you are. Because you can say, "Oh, well, I work um, for the city. I I work in a lawyer's office. I I work in a doctor's office," and and leave it at that. Or you can say. I work at a doctor's office, but I'm really a writer. And getting that out the first time is extremely difficult. But I think that if you're going to be a creative person, if if you're going to put yourself on the page, that you need to learn to eventually to put yourself out there to yourself first and then admit to other people next. It's a process. Because the first time you admit to somebody, oh, well, you know, I I work for such and such company, but I'm actually a writer, um, they're going to ask you, what do you write? And then you're going to have to have an answer for that because they always do. They always ask. And then immediately asking, what do you write? They ask you, are you published? Where could I read your work? And sometimes they don't actually want to read your work. They're just trying to be polite, but other times they're genuinely interested and they want to read your work. So if you can say, well, I'm not published yet, be comfortable with that. It Being a writer, the goal of being a writer is to write. That is the goal as a writer. Your goal as a writer is to write, is to put down words on a piece of paper, on a computer screen, on a typewriter, ever how you want to do it. That is your goal. That is it. That is is the only goal you have as a writer, as a creative person who writes. That is it. So if you do that, if you write, then you are a writer. Period. There is a difference between being a writer and being an author. An author is someone... um, was published, for, at least in my mind. That's how I separated the two out. Um, so when people ask me what I what I do, I tell them I'm a writer. I don't tell them I'm an author because that was never my goal. That that was never um, what I um, needed to accomplish in order to have some kind of validation. I in fact did that for other people. I I didn't do it for me. Um, I don't put my fan fiction online for me, put it online for my readers, because um, I could write thousands upon thousands of stories and never publish them and be perfectly content in fandom. Uh, That's not what it's about, because I think you need to learn before you put yourself out there or as you're putting yourself out there, whether you're writing fan fiction or whether you're trying to get published, is that you need to love you and you need to love your work and you accept yourself. And that way, that way you don't have to um, seek validation from other people. And it is super important as a creative person not to fall into that trap. Don't slave yourself to somebody else's approval. That's like the most important thing I could tell any writer. Don't 
base your self-esteem and your worth as a writer on anybody else's approval or disapproval. Because that's ruining. I mean, it will ruin you. And uh, it's so easy for a young new writer to fall into that trap, to fall into being um, dependent on feedback, on kudos if they're on um, AO3. Don't depend on that. Don't don't even look at it. Read the comments if you want to, but you don't have to. You don't have to read the feedback. If I would say that to anybody on anything, you don't have to read it. You're not required to read it. Do I need to say it again? You're not required to read feedback. You're not required to answer feedback. You're not required to answer comments or questions. You're not required to do any of it, to nothing. You're, you don't even have to answer emails if you don't want to. And this is talking specifically to fandom and fan fiction writers. You don't have to answer their questions. You don't even have to tell them you're not going to answer their questions. You can just ignore it. You don't got to look at it. You don't got to read it. You don't got to pay attention to it. You don't have to give it a single second of consideration. You really don't. But if you do, if you read it, don't invest yourself in their validation. Because if you do, you're opening yourself up to be hurt. Because like Azor just said in the chat room, readers are fickle. And fandom is a whole new level of fickle. It it's infuriating really. To, to know there are people out there in in um in your fandoms that you really love that are hell bent on making other people miserable. And actually I there was a situation in the Hobbit fandom with some plagiarism and the amount of shit the original author got for pointing out the plagiarism ruined the Hobbit fandom for me. I can't even go over there and read on AO3 anymore because I'm thinking, are, are you one of those assholes who's on that? I can't even look at it. It's it's really frustrating. It's you know you see these people in fandom with their you know, and I saw the I, I saw the word entitlement around a lot, but it is. It's like they're entitled to tell you how they feel, and you're required to listen. That's their point of view. They want to inject themselves in your work. They want to inject themselves in your life. And it creates this false sense of intimacy when you interact with them. And I've done it. I've I've fallen into that trap. I have responded to trolls when I shouldn't. Um, Brad, I responded to Brad. I did. I couldn't help myself. We all fall prey to it. But when you do, when you do fall prey to it, 
you you open yourself up to frustration and irritation because even months later, Brad still irritates me. And that's my fault, not his. Because I let him get in there. I let his opinion and his, his words fester. And now I'm all irritated again. But mostly it's because he called me a specimen, like I wasn't even a person. And that was really dehumanizing and demoralizing, and I I let it get the better of me. So I'm not saying that I don't do it. I'm saying that I really shouldn't do it, and that we none of us should fall prey to this kind of behavior because it just it it's true. Don't feed the trolls. But what it boils down to is really is that you're not required to read anybody's feedback, no matter who they are. You have to read my feedback if I leave feedback, and I don't often leave feedback because it comes back to haunt me in weird, weird ways. Like I get emails saying, "Oh my God, I can't believe you're reading my story. Would you please stop? You're freaking me out." Okay, I'll stop reading it. I'm sorry, I had no idea. So sometimes I won't leave feedback or kudos until a work is complete because I, there was that one time I followed somebody or subscribed to something or, or left a kudo on something on Ao3, and the author emailed me and told me she couldn't write because she knew I was reading. I'm okay. I don't know what to do with that. I asked her. I emailed her. I said, would it, would it be better if I promised not to read it until you're done? Would that, would that be better? I mean, I don't know what to do with that. Well, what do I do with that? It doesn't make any sense. Anyways, so we we interact in an environment where we impact each other, whether we mean to or not. Um. And sometimes when somebody, yeah, somebody you know really well comments on your stuff, you get all freaked out and you get excited. I remember the first time Dances with Gary commented on something that I wrote, I was giddy. I I called Lady Holder. I did. <laughs> I called her like, oh, my God, Dances with Gary reads my stuff. Can you believe that? I was so excited. I was so excited. Um so, yeah, I mean, I understand, um, but I didn't get nervous because she was reading, but not everybody reacts the same way, you know. Uh, so, but we do impact each other. We do um, in in a variety of ways. Um, my writing impacts somebody else. Somebody else's writing impacts me. Sometimes you see things, and, and that's how tropes get started in fandom, because these themes, um, yeah, I have to admit, if... If Lady Raw commented on my stuff, I'd probably have a party. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna lie. Um, Claire said that Lady Rock um, kudoed her, and, the, and um, that she immediately emailed her beta to to, to tell her because she was so excited. But yeah, I would have been like super excited. I'd have called everybody. I might have had a radio show, um, radio show about it because yeah, I mean you you. I am as much a fan of other writers in fandom as some people are fans of me. So when somebody that I'm a huge fan of um, reads my work and they like it, I'm like, <laughs> have a little party, you know. So it's kind of like I had a book um, published and a professional writer that I happen to adore, I mean, I really super adore her, um, sent an email to to me um and told me how much she enjoyed the book, and I 
I got the biggest head for like a whole day. It was like I had permission for myself to be an arrogant twat, and I was for like a whole day, and and, and then I set it aside because you can't be that way. Um, so you know, it's just like well, when Xanth told me that I could um um that I could post ties that bind that, that she was okay with it, I was like, woo, yay, yeah. So you know, we all have those moments. And that they can be very validating moments. But also, when you allow other people to validate you, you also allow other people to tear you down. So it's a two-way street. When you invest yourself in somebody else's opinion, it um, it can come back to bite you really hard. Like, it would destroy me if I found out Xanth hated Ties That Bind. I mean, I would prefer that she never read it than than actually hate it. And I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying she does. I'm just saying that if she did and I found out, I would be really, really upset. <laughs> so you know, it's like it's like that. It's because I've um, invested in her approval. Her disapproval would be really painful. So, and that's across the board with any writing situation, any situation where you're letting somebody else um, impact you. When my agent doesn't like what I write, it hurts my feelings. I'm not going to lie. I'm like, she's like, this doesn't work. I'm like, oh, really? Because I think it does. No, it really doesn't work. And then you get upset and you might cry a little bit. Okay, maybe a lot, you know, depending. And, you know. Um, you do have to prepare yourself for rejection when you're writing for, for print or for publication, and I know that. And so I I don't let myself, um, you know, wallow too much in self-pity before I get back up and do something new or try something new. How about this? How about that? What do you think of this? Um <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a lot, yeah, absolutely. So you know, it just depends. You know, you you drink a whole bottle of wine and then you move on with your life. I mean, so you know. But when you are a creative person, sometimes your emotions um, are a little closer to the surface than other people's, and so you're going to expose yourself um, to a variety of painful situations when you put yourself out there. In fandom, you're opening yourself up in a lot of ways that, um, honestly, a lot of professional writers don't. And let me tell you what it is. Um, professional writers for a long time were isolated from, from reader feedback. I mean, sometimes readers sent letters, you know, but there was never, and then the Internet happened, and, and that changed um that changed everything about uh, author-reader interaction, you know, because as a professional writer, I get a lot of emails, and I encountered a writer who's not online. She doesn't have an email. She doesn't have – she's professionally published. She's been published for decades. Um, she's a mystery writer um, and lives in my area. And she doesn't have a website. She doesn't have an email address. And she might get two fan letters a year that she gets forwarded from her um, editor or her agent, and that's it. And she asked me, what's the biggest drawback about being online? I said, reader availability. And she said, what do you mean? I said, how many how many letters or notes have you gotten from readers, like, say, in the last five years? And she said, maybe 12. And I said, I get maybe 15 a day when I have a new book out. I put a new book out, I get 
upwards of three or four hundred letters, emails, notes from from readers saying, "Oh, I love this," or "Oh, I hated this." Can we have this next? Can I have this story next? Can I have this? I really enjoyed this character. I think he should be the center of your next book. Oh yeah, and then it dies down as the book goes through the process, and you know it hits ebook, and then there'll be another hit, you know, of of feedback. And then um, it'll die down again, and then every once in a while I'll get an email saying, hey, I really enjoyed this. Are we going to get a sequel to this? Can Is, is there going to be a book for this character? And that's really fine. But somebody who's never been online, would be overwhelmed by this experience. They wouldn't know what to do with it. Anyway. Lady Holder on the air. Hey. Hello all. Oh creative and, and you know, it it's one of those weird things as you were talking about how you're able to, to um you know, not not work in the public sphere, um, but work at home. Mm-hmm. I have a job. I have a, um, a yeah. job that I I work an hour or I live an hour away from, and so it's an hour in the vehicle both ways. You know, and um, it's uh, thankfully I'm carpooling, so at least every other week I, I get that hour back. Um, and sometimes it's spent with my eyes firmly closed, um, trying either to capture sleep or ignore traffic. And sometimes it's actually with, you know, a paper and pen out and I'm writing, you know. Um, so it gets interesting, you know. But I write at work in between um, things. I write on my break. I write at lunch. Um, yeah, it's... You write when you can, and you write as much as you can. Yeah. So. So, how many hours do you think you spend um, writing a week? Um. Let's see. I get an hour lunch, so I get about forty-five minutes of writing time a day, so five days a week, and then um, two or three hours in the evening. And even then, it's normally around other things. So, so how many hours total a week do you think that is? Um, twenty, twenty-five hours maybe. If I'm really lucky, and then weekends when I when I fit that in, so that might be four or five hours. Yeah. So. So less than thirty. Less than thirty. But yeah. more than twenty. Mm-hmm. You know that qualifies it's as a part-time that. job. I know. And you have to think that most writers are in that same that that same situation. They're working eight to ten hours a day between lunch and um, carpool and all that. Then they have to come home. They have to feed their family. They have to feed their kids if they got kids. They have to you know wash the dog. Haven't helped the ones homework. who actually have a real life. Uh, haven't helped the ones who actually have a real life part time job on top of everything because you know money being what it is, they right. kind of like it and you like eating. Right. 
So yeah, yeah. And when, also, when you, you know, have you a husband have like I do, who's more than willing to support you, um, it's a godsend. I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess you could call it that a godsend. I mean, not like mm-hmm. actually God. Well, but, you, you know, know, I don't actually believe in that. But yeah, like that. No, but that a gift. It's a gift. Well, I don't know. I mean, there's there's the occupancy of your um, your silverware drawer. <laughs> really tickled um but no yeah you know it's a, yeah it's a gift when you have somebody who's um who's willing and capable of supporting you because it isn't always the case and, you know sometimes um a one job household does not work i mean it just it won't work because of the society that we live in and the um the pay and the um the minimum wage being so low and um mm-hmm. of course my husband you know is um, does consider this an investment. Um, he reminds me periodically that he's waiting for um, my personal Harry Potter. So, yeah. That's so, so, you know, <laughs> I said, I write Harry Potter all the time. He goes, no, you know what I mean. <laughs> so, yeah, yes, I mean, I there exactly. is that expectation from him that one day eventually um, I will write a bestseller. But um, it's not like a, um, it's not like he's going to get mad if I don't. <laughs> You know, it's it's like a, like a, a running joke, especially you know, as the person who isn't making the most of the money in the household. I'll tell you this: that there are times when I get really frustrated that I don't like to ask for money, and I get really upset. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, that's when he reminds me that eventually he expects me to, to um to produce a bestseller. That <laughs> just that makes it better. Um, because well, what he said was like, last time he said, and he goes, look, our money, my money is our money, and your future Harry Potter money, that's our money too. <laughs> and I can totally see that, but I can also see, and here, and and the thing that will stretch out is you, barring anything um, catastrophic, you don't have an end date to when you can publish. Right. right. There's people publishing in their 90s or more. Right. All right. There's a there was an author recently who died who had Alzheimer's. Okay. And he managed to stitch the book he was writing together because he kept rereading it. I believe is what I yeah. read. So, yeah, it worked. Okay. So it doesn't. I mean, your your um, employment or work his or work time doesn't end at 65 or 70. It can stretch until you decide that you're done with this and you type the end and it's not the end of the book, it's the end of your writing. Okay? I find Which, that horrifying. Yeah, I know, me too. But I'm I like think by the time instantly I'm, horrified by that idea that, that, that one day I will write the end for the final time. I, you know, honestly, honestly, as a writer, I would prefer to die mid-project you know, go out with my boots on. You do that shit, <laughs> I'm going to be so pissed at you. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying that um, I I don't want to write that last the end. I don't want to have a final the end. I'd prefer to be, I don't know, midway through a project. I, 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 I don't know why. I, you I, I just, yeah, I mean, you know, just I'd I like to go out with my boots on, 
you know, not having given up writing years before. Mm-hmm. That's so pitiful. Oh no, I can't. I can't. I can't get that. I mean, there's there's no end to the well. You're gonna write. That's the way it is. So you know, I don't like the idea of there being a final, the end. You know, of course there would be a final, the end if I were ended fi- you know, like mid project, but it wouldn't be the last words I wrote. No, I, I kind of doubt it will be. But so. you know, the the final, the end that's going to happen is going to happen no matter what. We there's no getting out of this this whole thing alive. Life is is inevitably yeah. fatal. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. For those of you who aren't on Facebook and aren't aware, I did get my new laptop. It's a beautiful red. It's an HP, um, and it's it's an HP 360. You know, the kind that has that three that that three yeah that you can flip it over and make it a tablet. Mm-hmm. And um, it's red. I named it Phoenix. <laughs> and the husband for my for for our anniversary got me a. Samsung Galaxy Tab S, whatever it is, it's an 8.4 inch, wonderful, beautiful thing, and it's all nice and um, it's almost got a, a coppery gold look to the, the cover. It's great. I love it. So I'm she hasn't fun named it. Have you named it? Uh, what did I plug this? When I plug it in, I think it's named as Atlantis, actually. So, <laughs> well, you know, my old laptop, the one that I had to retire because it kept, mm-hmm. um, it, it, my old laptop was working. And in fact, after my experience with Dell, I kept that one and, and t- took it with me everywhere. But, um, it was mm-hmm. seven years old and I had, um, updated the operating system like two years ago and it worked fine. But then it started to have overheating problems. And before, I wanted to replace it before it outright died so I didn't lose anything. So I, I was backing up every day and, um, you know, so I wouldn't lose anything. And I keep my writing on Google Drive anyway, uh, but uh, I use OneDrive for my for my personal stuff. It's just um, I wanted to replace it before it outright died because the idea of not having my laptop and not being able to go out and write was really kind of it freaked me out. I'm not going to lie. I mean, because as um, – <sighs> After I left my last job and I worked from home, mm-hmm. um, my laptop was like an extension of me, and I carried it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so, but, you know, so it's like, mm, I don't know. <clears throat> Have you got a keyboard for your tablet? Because I highly recommend the one that I'm currently got. Um, it's amazing. It's Bluetooth. It's got a battery. Um, I forget the brand, but I have it on um, my, my Amazon list, and I will uh, send it to you. Mine is a Bluetooth. It's a, uh, it's actually solar. It's a Logitech one, and it was originally okay, designed I've seen that for Apple. Yeah, it was originally designed for Apple's, but it works with just about anything. I just have to tie it in, and it's it's good to go. Um, so, you know, that's that's just wonderful. And honestly, I just plugged in the, the, the uh, tablet and I realized that, no, um, Atlantis is the phone. Sentinel is the tablet. <laughs> Good job. So I named awesome. my ta- yes, yes. And if I get anything else, it'll be called Guide. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> my current yeah. cell phone is called Matilda. I make no apologies for this. Matilda. And apparently I'm missing the reference, so whatever. Um, the movie. You, um, you've never seen the, the movie Matilda? 
That's the little girl who has a horrible family. No. Yeah, I remember that one. No, that's... No, um... No, then apparently I'm missing it. Matilda is a right is a is a reader. She loves to read, and her family is terrible. And she goes to the school, and she meets this teacher who's amazing. And come to find out, Matilda has magical powers. And um, it's really like all of my um, nieces and nephews have have watched this movie obsessively as children. And Matilda gets her magical powers, and she saves the day. And her favorite teacher adopts her, and she. It's just a magical life. So, yeah, I think you should definitely watch it. It's called Matilda. It's a great book. It's a great movie. Um, it's awesome. Yeah, well, Copeland's our type of magic. I'll, I'll agree to that. <laughs> and it really is about the power of um, of, uh, of books. And and hmm. um, she she kind of escapes her... Her poor family situation. And I don't mean like financially. I mean like just her parents are terrible, um, and she uh, she just kind of escapes her life and with books. And then she meets um, someone, a, a, a teacher who shares her love for books, and um, the, the teacher adopts her. Um, and it's just a really good movie. It's a really good film movie, and I, I've always liked it because because. This 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 little oh. girl gets magic. She gets magic. Okay. Hmm. And all my nieces love it. They all love it. So I named my phone Matilda. Okay. Because my phone was cute and magical <laughs> and little. Because <laughs> I went from having one of those big Samsungs to having a mini. <laughs> I got the oh, S5 Mini, great. and it's like half the size of my um, my first Galaxy phone. And um, so mm-hmm. I just called it Matilda because it was little and cute like Matilda. Good question. <laughs> you know, since, 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 you know, we this is the first time I've talked to you in a week. Have you plugged it in recently? How about what? Have you plugged in your phone recently? My phone is currently plugged in. How do you know? It's 100% charged. Totally plugged in. (laughs) I honestly, though, have no idea where my tablet is. That's a shame. That's a problem. I don't know why I did that. How about your headphones? (laughs) My headphones are on. She's so mean to me, you guys. Oh, bullshit. I am not. I am so not. (sighs) Ah. Yeah, it's it, mm. there have been a number of times where we've had conversations where he goes, "Do you hear that beep?" It's like, "No, oh, I know why I'm beeping. It's because her, you know, headphones were out of power." My headset almost died. I don't actually have my um, LG headset plugged in. You're absolutely right. I should plug that in. I'm, I'm going out tomorrow. Mother and I have a shopping excursion planned. Oh God, have we warned the rest of the township? No, they don't need no fucking warnings. They got they, wherever they get, they got coming. Damn. Uh, uh, you know, I hate you really right now. It's just why it, I really do. Look at this at the chat, specifically from Samwise. <laughs> oh come on. <laughs> This is a 
a life lesson. This is a life lesson I am teaching you, and it's about <laughs> riding with a partner. Because when you ride with a partner, you just can't make arbitrary decisions about character death. Excuse me. We didn't make arbitrary, or we didn't make any rules about the, the you know, um, the, the sideline homicides, or in this case, natural deaths. That's the point. Yeah. You don't do it. <laughs> this is where her fan fiction background comes back to bite her, because she has this um, this internal ownership of the characters that she's writing, and we all do it in fan fiction. And, and you do what you want to characters, even though they don't actually belong to you; they were created by somebody else. But when you're writing with somebody, um, it's really bad form to kill their original characters. I learned my lesson. <laughs> She undies very quickly. So, the tea lady will forever be a part of the minion lexicon. You're just going to have to suck it up. <laughs> All right, fine. I'll be a buttercup lesson, and suck it up. Lesson learned, darling. Lesson learned. But, you no, know, that is actually something that we could talk about. You know, when you're writing with a partnership, um, it if you have um, – you know, because frankly, if anybody else had done that to me, I probably would have stopped writing with them forever and ever. I learn. Like, <laughs> well, no, I mean, this, this isn't about you anymore. This is about, um, you know, uh, well, because you didn't fuss about it, but I've actually had um, had situations with, with with other writers where they would have fought me, you know, to 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 keep the murder of my character. Um, um, no, you said no. I said okay. Fine. But no, you didn't. No, yeah, but but um, when you're writing with somebody, it is very easy, very easy to um, intrude on their process and create hostility. So when you're writing with another person, it's super, super, super important that you communicate up front all the goals you have for the story and if you make a decision on the fly don't I've done this I've actually lost a very good friend trying to do this and I didn't mean to but I did I I stomped all over her process and I did not mean to and she has not spoken to me in 15 years I'm serious <laughs> She like she like cut me off completely, um, and I didn't I didn't see it coming. And I did to her something that it would have it would have never bothered me. Just oh. like if I killed one of Lady Holder's auxiliary OCs, she probably wouldn't even blink because she did it to me. So she obviously doesn't think it's a problem, or she didn't at the time, no. right? Um, no, and and I so probably if I did it to her, she she um, she yeah, probably wouldn't question- have even thought twice. If, if if I had done it to her, but there are things that I would do to this to this woman that I would not that they didn't bother me at all, you know, and I had no idea it was bothering her. To the, and, and she let me continue to do it, and that's the problem. Oh, that's one yeah, of the no. problems we weren't communicating is that she let me continue to um, to make mm-hmm. these changes throughout this novel we, we were making together, and. Um, writing together, and um, we were 85% finished with the project when she lost her fucking mind. 
Jesus. And I had no idea she'd spent most of the last year we were riding together hating my guts. Oh, for fuck's sake. Because we weren't communicating. Yeah, and no. writing with somebody um, is like a marriage. You have to communicate. You have to talk with each other. You have to say, you know what, I really don't like your flow here, but I don't want to fix it for you. <laughs> because, you know, and it became a thing, you know. I um, mm-hmm. was, uh, she, okay, I'll tell you her problem. She had a problem with um really, really super long sentences, and she used them everywhere. And it really slowed the pace Uh. of the book down. So I would cut her sentences up into multiple sentences as I was, like, rewriting um, and, you know, Uh just doing editing on the – and, oh, my God. You know, she acted like that was the worst thing I could have possibly ever done to her. I mean, she acted like I had just slapped her in the face, and maybe I did from her point of view. And from my point of view, it wouldn't have bothered me at all. But it was like the worst thing I could have possibly have done to her. Well, I, so unless you yeah, you, know, you don't know what your other person is doing, you need to pay attention to that because I lost a very good friend and a um, talented writing partner. <laughs> because she was talented. She was an excellent plotter. She had great characterization. She just had this problem with really long sentences. And when you're writing a suspense like we were doing, that doesn't fly because uh, because a suspense has a different pace, and she actually wrote women's mm-hmm. fiction, and she still does. And for her, for women's fiction, her pace is amazing. You know, it, it works perfectly. Um, but for suspense, she was slowing this book down till it read like stereo instructions. Oh, that's never fun. And I made the mistake of saying that too, which could be also why I'm short one friend um, <laughs> even even yeah. so many years later <laughs> yeah i'm just saying yeah so hello. you have to communicate hello yeah. that's hello. like a cousin mhm yes we had um, we had loin chops tonight and oven roasted potatoes it was quite good yay that sounds really good i had chinese food i had um, garlic chicken and chicken fried rice. It was quite yummy. Hmm. Yeah, we didn't. Um, the the thing with writing with you and I, and you said it once, and you know I recognize it superficially in a way is um, when we when we got started writing. Um, Beautiful and Dangerous Things, which is the only thing we've officially co-wrote. Um, you and I, it, it's very distinct where you and I cut off. Mm-hmm. And as we got further and further and further into it, there was more of a blend. But there's also the fact that you and I went over that thing and have gone over that thing and rewritten parts of it and made it smoother. And yeah. so the, the blend is a lot more... Um, it, it's it's frankly it's a lot smoother. It, it works better because we we've you know we know where we are. We also because that's we were doing that on I am when we um, when we started it, and so we spent a lot of time um, just you know writing out what we wanted out of it. You know who was going to do what and where, and who, you know um, we we figured out who our, our you know victims were and how they died, and that was pretty gruesome. 
and you know. Um, yeah, it was kind of terrible. <clears throat> um, yeah, but we did plan it. Um, mm-hmm. The problem becomes in a writing partnership is when you skip, when you when you verge off the plan. You know, um, yeah. and this can happen in any situation, really, is when, when you plan something with somebody and you verge off the plan, it can um, create conflict. It didn't with us. I mean, really, this two-lady thing is a big joke, I promise you. I did not get mad at her. I mean, I did call her and say, yeah. oh, my God, you killed my two-lady. And I was really dramatic about it, but I wasn't, like, mad. I mean, if it had been anybody no. else, I'm, I, I would have been really seriously pissed off. But she's my friend first. And that makes a difference, mm-hmm. but when um for me anyway um but for my my previous friend who no longer speaks to me, apparently our friendship did not come first, Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, no. and you have to be prepared for that. So I always, I always caution people: be careful with your writing partner. Be mm-hmm. super careful because mm-hmm. writing is personal, and when you're writing with somebody, it's kind of like having sex with them. Mm-hmm. It needs to be and entirely she's been consensual. Me for three years. Uh, it just takes things real slow. <laughs> <laughs> really. Jesus. I'm just I'm just I'm I'm saying that really legitimately when you're riding with somebody it's like having sex with somebody. It it has to be entirely consensual. There there needs to be a conversation mm-hmm. before, there needs to be aftercare. <laughs> oh yeah, you you actually there's a point in time where you're sitting there and you're going, "Okay, so I think it was good and and if your partner says, "Look, dude, I didn't get anything out of that other than irritation." There's a problem, and you need to figure out what's going on. Yeah, you definitely because... need to make sure that your partner's coming along with you. Yes, because otherwise it's just not fun. Yeah. <laughs> there's slow build, and then there's that. We've been promising these people for a while. Um, but the, the well, that comes to another matter is like not yeah. writing and writing. Um, sometimes um, when, it, when it comes to fan fiction, I let myself. Um, go in in ways that I don't let myself go professionally. Mm-hmm. Now professionally I have this this and this to do and I work on it in that order. This this and this and I have this to do here and I have this to do there and I have to do this and I have no choice to do this because I already got paid for it. <laughs> so uh-huh. this has to go here and my agent needs this on this date. But when it comes to fan fiction, I let myself be inspired and go wherever I want. Mhm. Because Otherwise, it wouldn't be a hobby, and then I would need a new True. hobby. So it can lead to a very frustrating experience for readers, which is why I try not to post um, actual works in progress outside of Evil Author Day or wh- wherever, because I know it can be very frustrating, and um, so um, that's why there are no... I mean, outside of my series work when it comes to like uh, Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, I consider each one of those little... Um, Parts a completed story was in the series. You know what I mean. Speaking of mm-hmm. which, my current piece um, for Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond episode twenty um, eight ish. <laughs> Hold on, eight ish. It's eight ish. Twenty eight ish. Hold on. Um, uh, where'd it go? I have too many folders. Um, it's yes, twenty eight. Well, yeah. Twenty eight. It's called Magic's Justice. And it is a whopping 22K. (sighs) (laughs) 
And I did something sad in it, and I'm I'm kind of sad, but also I'm looking forward to exploring it. Um, and uh, so, yeah. You know? Wait. I, I know that, you know, there, okay, I get a lot of first looks, and I know it. Every once in a while, you know, and, and this is a really crazy thing because you guys hear about this in these things, or occasionally when she posts something on Facebook, you'll hear a, oh, I just passed XYZ. Occasionally I get a, I'm at this number on this thing, and I'm going, when did this particular item come back on the schedule? I don't remember this. You know, this this was back burner two years ago. When did this come back? You know, and it's it's sometimes it's a case of oh, I just got pissed off at somebody and I want to write. You know, and this is how you get um, uh, big gay love in Canada. You know? I know, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's I, I sit there and it's like oh okay, or you know I hear about. Um, you're on your Hobbit kick, which, you know, hell if I know where that thing is. Um, I hear about, you know, the three, and then all of a sudden you and I start talking, and we 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 bunnied each other, and you're off on to another one. It's like, oh, well, okay, this is fun. Um, Trinity, which is my uh, my Hobbit fix that she bunnied me on, is currently 8K. Um, Thorne has just met uh, Bella, and I turned it a little bit because um, – that I heard when he, when he turns around when when he meets her he sees her and um, she just puts her hands on her hips and says so this is the king she says, and, <laughs> and she uh-huh. says, I suppose you'll do <laughs> you know I'm, I I'm suppose you'll do it's just like my favorite oh, yeah. line in that whole thing <clears throat> the 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 one that um what is it uh. Um, Spiritborn. That's another one you did the same thing in. Yeah, I, I love Spiritborn. Um, yeah, I mm-hmm. love that that idea. Now, this is in Spiritborn. He does his line, and she pops that back to him. Um, and but mm-hmm. this is like he's staring at her, and he's just kind of floored by how cute and pretty she is. And um, then she kind of smirks at him, and he just falls in love. <laughs> he doesn't even know what to do mm-hmm. with himself, you know. So it's. Um, it's it's a little different. I also have another um, uh, Hobbit that no one has seen, and it's called the Bartered Queen. Have you seen that? No, of course not. <laughs> she huffed at me. Did you guys hear that? She huffed at me. Um, it's called the Bartered Queen, and um, Bella, uh, her parents have died, and because um, it's also Bilbo's always been a girl. I, I'm not going to get out of that, so I hope none of you are expecting me to. It's like stuck in me. I don't That's mind with you. I'm stuck. I don't mind. I'm just with stuck you there. Because, um, so because, I just I don't know if it's ever going to be Bilbo. It's, it's probably always going to be Bella, and I'm not sorry. I'm um, not. I'm not a but pet. Bella. You know, I really not. Um, her. Yeah. But some people are. I I, I got some emails about it. Uh, I know, right? So Bella's parents have died, and she <laughs> refused um, the Thane's son to marry him, and they got that's really. A, um, and so her Thane bartered her to. Um, the Blue Mountain Settlement in a trade agreement. And he thinks that he's 
basically thrown her at this dwarf barbarian who's pretending to be a lord when he's actually the future king of Erebor. Erebor never fell, mm-hmm. and he's um, called Thorin Dragonslayer. And um, he's in the Blue Mountains um, as the lord there, and um, his father is currently the king. But he's going mm-hmm. slowly crazy. <coughs> so Bella gets tossed to the Blue Mountains, and, and it's called the Bartered Queen. Um, because she was bartered to him in a trade agreement, um, mm-hmm. and uh, she uh, he doesn't know what to, what to do with her. But uh, um, yeah, so I, I have that one too. And what's going to happen is is that he's going to end up going to um, Moria, and um, his father's going to be killed at Moria. And then he's going to have to take his little hobbit queen, um, his little hobbit wife, back to Erebor, and they're going to have to have to all adjust to that. So it's, I'm really excited about it too. It's really interesting. But I like to explore those concepts of um, different situations and relationships and how they develop. And um, the hobbit's kind of freeing, actually. There's a lot of um, room to maneuver of, and play around. Mm-hmm. And, well, you know, here's the the thing for me with with the Hobbit as as you look at the whole thing. There's a rich back history, if you will. It's got enough um, enough of a uh, history to support just about everything. But the with what you've done with the characters, you've basically said, you know, um, these are these are new situations, new things because. Your your Bella doesn't strike me as false, and some of the female Bilbo's, I'm sorry, I'm not going to name names because frankly I don't remember, but some of them do. Okay, they they false? they slap it, they feel off. You I'm going to tell you why they feel off because I know exactly right. what you're saying. They're not making them female. They're little boys in girls' dresses. There are there is a difference between a female character and a male character, and a lot of times when a character gets switched, you do a gender switch. They change the name, but they don't change their body movements. They don't change um, their speech patterns. But men and women are different. We're really mm-hmm. super different. So things that Bilbo would say, Bella would not. God, I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, I mean, that's for real. There are things that Bilbo said that Bella would never say in a million years, and vice versa, because Bilbo and Bella are two different genders, and they approach things differently. Where on the original quest, when Thorin verbally abuses Bilbo, he takes it. Mm-hmm. He internalizes it. He doesn't res- – but there's no way – a woman who's lived on her own until she's 50 years old. She's, this is, she's 50 years old in The Hobbit, if you go by the canon. Mm-hmm. She's lived by herself since her parents died. She takes care of land. She's a landowner. She has her garden. She has help. This is not a woman who's going to internalize verbal abuse. No. She would tell him to kiss her ass. Mm-hmm. By the way, the reason I laughed at what Barbara said is Barbara asked, "Is Bilbo is a drag queen?" And all I could <laughs> see is, I'm, I'm sorry, Martin Freeman. He's a wonderful, gorgeous man. 
But oh my! He would be a really ugly girl. He would be a really unattractive girl. Dude, I'm sorry. No, I'd rather stick Richard Armitage in a dress. (laughs) Yes, yes, Sorka. Yes, Sorka. The Arkenstone is real. It's an actual thing. That it is fanon. That it's the cause of the madness. Um, uh, when it's actually probably the power, the the Ring of Power. Um. And the dragon. That's the real problem, and and the dragon, um, and the ring of power has tainted the line of Durin. Mm-hmm. And the ring of power that the dwarfs have that that's in the line of Durin was actually forged by by Sauron, right? They all were. Um, all those rings of I power. Think, were. I think. I think what it was is they were they were forged by the elves, but they were tainted by Sauron. Is the is my understanding, and I'd actually have to rewatch the movies because I don't remember. But it's in the it's in the pre the the prologue no, of that, um, no in, in, in the prologue of the Fellowship of the Right. She says um, that these rings were given to men and to elves and to dwarves, um, but they were betrayed. Sauron forged them yeah. all. Okay, all of them. Lilac says they forged. And because Sauron okay. um, was a Valar. Valar and then he gave them mm-hmm. out, but he didn't tell them that he created one to rule them all. Mm-hmm. So that ring that the dwarves have was, and I don't know why any of them kept those rings. Because, I really don't. Because what it did yes, was... Yes, they were rings of power, but they were answer. also forged by a devil. Yeah, well, pow- come on, you know this as well as anybody. Power corrupts and absolute power uh, corrupts absolutely. Corrupts absolutely. Yeah, it's good. Um, so I think the ring is the reason um, that the line of Duran is so fucked up. Mm-hmm. And you've you've played that, and uh, I think it was actually in Soulmate Bond, or the, not Soulmate Bond, but the 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 um, the one where they they come back. You know, and that's that's the one that um, you comment on it. You know, um, it, the okay on Lord the of the Rings, the, the Rings of Power. It says this. It says this, Lord of the Rings. The Rings of Power were twenty magical rings forged in the Second Age, intended by Sauron to seduce the rulers of Middle Earth to evil. Nineteen of these ring, rings were made by the Elven Smiths of Erigen, um, led by. Celebrimore, ever how you say his name. I'm sorry if I'm fucking it up. Yeah, so I don't mean to fans. Okay. These were grouped into three rings for the elves, seven for the dwarves, and nine kings and nine rings for men. But an additional one ring was forged by Sauron himself at Mount Doom. So they were for, they were they were made by the Elven Smiths of Air um Eregion E R E G I O N. So, right. <clears throat> The elves made the rings, but Sauron tainted them and passed them out to mm-hmm. seduce them to evil. And then after they mostly defeated them, they kept the fucking rings. Dumbasses. Every single one of them. <clears throat> well, I, yes, but power. What's always it's, bothered you know, me is that um, Elrond was um, insisting that uh, the one ring be destroyed in that one clip. And this motherfucker kept his mm-hmm. ring. Uh-huh. But you know, they should have if, all if they got been destroyed. Of, all of the rings should have been destroyed. Yes, but if you got rid of the one ring, he could he could easily and without a problem have his ring, and that would be fine. 
Um, yeah, because his ring would have had nothing to rule. So all those rings should have been destroyed, and then his ring would have been essentially powerless. Because the one ring was supposed to just rule the other rings. That was why it was so important that he not get it. Well, that's what I'm I'm just saying. The... the, um... Elrond would have been looking for, uh, if he could have gotten rid of the One Ring, his ring, the, the, whatever his technical term for his ring was, would have still been okay because then um, it wouldn't have had that Except that it was created weakness. to seduce him to evil. Yes, well. Except the whole purpose of the ring was to seduce them to evil. I mean, you know, here's the thing, though, is that the elves didn't give up their rings, and the men didn't give up their rings, and the dwarves didn't give up their rings either. These rings were not given up. And so keeping them in their greed and keeping them, Mm -hmm. they allowed the one ring to have power. Yep. Which is the main, which gr- is the main theme of Lord of the Rings? It's greed. Mm-hmm. Yep. But regardless, <sighs> there's uh, a great deal of, um, you know, the the, the abs- um, absolute power corrupts and uh, you know, you know, it's it's the whole power corrupting thing that that gets me. Um, Lorca is absolutely right. She says, what pissed me off about that scene is he was right there. If the human wasn't going to destroy the One Ring, Elrond should have dumped his ass into the volcano himself and saved the world a lot of grief. I totally agree. He should have pushed his ass right into that volcano. (sighs) It was just the two of them. Nobody else would have known. Nope. He threw it in, and then he t- he had requires remorse, and he dived in afterwards. Oops! He tripped and fell. <laughs> it was terrible. I need I need mental this, counseling. This, yes, this gangly. I'm so traumatized by this. Yes, this gangly creature uh, appeared in the flash of light and screamed, "My precious!" As it took him, you know, took a dive after him. You know, yeah, whatever. But in it's, reality. Elrond is just as corrupted as any they other body. You know, and I think they all are. I mean, they all are corrupted by these rings and their desire to keep them. Well, what is it? Um, and it's in the movie, and I, I've never read the book, so of course that, that makes me all sorts of interestingly handicapped on this. But in the in the movie where Galadriel is showing um, Frodo the... Scouring of the Shire, something that in the movie never happens. Okay, um, he offers her the ring, hands you know flat hand flat, and offers her this thing, and she almost takes it. And you can see her just all sorts of you know. I'm sorry, she looked like the biggest nightmare out of you know ever, and then she then she pulled herself back. And she said no. So, you know, um, Gandalf didn't even want to pick the damn thing up. He left it sit on the floor of Bag End for who knows how long until Frodo came back once Bilbo dropped it. I mean, it could have been hours sitting there smoking a pipe while the one ring sat at the, the, the 
you know, the front door of Bilbo's small. I mean, really? Interesting. Well, he couldn't afford to touch it. He literally no, could not, not afford to touch it. Well, he grazed it. None of them really could. It. Mm-hmm. None of them could afford to touch it. None, none of them could. None of them were. They were all susceptible to it. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, way, so way I enjoy the Hobbit fandom it. as long as I avoid the Hobbit fandom. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. because I'm really put off by the entitlement of some of the readers in the Hobbit fandom. And it's kind of like uh, how I feel about the Sentinel fandom. I like the Sentinel uh-huh. fandom, but I don't like the Sentinel fandom. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're insulated and they're cliquish. And oh. I know I've been accused of being cliquish and of playing favorites. And, of course, I have favorites. Lady Holder's my favorite. I thought you all knew. Oh, I think you know. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, just as a just as a complete and, aside, and, and Mariah is my super favorite because I adopted her. Come on, yeah, she's your badass unicorn baby. Yes, I know. I have a children, you know, and I, I know it's a vampire term, but you know, considering that if she had her way, the sun wouldn't you know bother her. Yeah, I can understand this. Um, the as a complete aside, and also going back to the beginning of this whole conversation that we that you've been having with us tonight. When you actually commented on my stuff the first time, I think I, I danced around a little bit. I've had stuff commented <laughs> on, on by Lady so Raw, and that one was weird. Um, you telling me, <laughs> and you telling me that you know um, one of my ideas sparked something, you know, and it, to this day, it's one of those things that every once in a while you pull it out and you look at it and you pet and you go, oh, that's so cool, and then off you go. Okay. Um, thankfully, fan fiction's given me a thick skin because the I have a cross my fingers and toes. I have something coming out in a couple months. I got my edits back. Oh, holy hell! I didn't have any wine. I had to do it sober. <laughs> Oh my! Do it like God. I do it. Approach every I, edit like a learning experience. I did. I ripped the bandaid off and I got knuckled down and I did it. But you know, it was definitely a case of there's the bandaid. You know, and oh, how do you feel afterwards? Naked. <laughs> Is it a good naked or a bad naked? Well, I'm not standing in front of the composition class trying to, to uh, you know, to give a, a speech, but it's fairly close, <laughs> you know. I cried during my first edits. I want you to know I cried like a fucking baby through my first edits. I didn't. My, actually, I, did. I, I, will, I will take that back. My first edits from you, I drank most of a bottle of wine. I'll be real. <laughs> I really did. I was I, nice. I I don't care. I've never had one of those before. My other betas didn't do that. Okay. And so <laughs> you asked. I now no. In my defense, I asked her how she wanted mm-hmm. me to do her beta. Mm-hmm. And she told me to let her have it. You did. You did. I learned. Okay. Trust me. If I had, 
I don't think I'd have gotten up the chutzpah to actually put myself out in the sphere that I'm currently um, in if I hadn't had the years of you being very merciless in what you did. Okay? Um, It hurt, and it made me twitch, and yeah, but, you know, I read it back through, and they're right, okay? Um, Does it mean that I don't miss the words? Well, yeah, I do. I wrote it. I liked my words. Um, But I actually have two versions of this file now. I have the original file, and then I have the other one, okay? And the other one is where that's going to get published. The original isn't. You know, I may use the words, you know, eventually, but right now it's no. You know, so turning into an adult on this whole thing, it really sucks. <laughs> <laughs> now, Sina says something in the chat room. She says, wait, what? I don't know if I got a full force, but I didn't cry when I got back TB. Um, you didn't get a full force, Sina. Um, I, uh, um, I don't do that to people unless they ask for it. I asked for it. Straight up and full and 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 without a doubt, you know. And I I I asked for the, you know, I'm never going to learn unless I when, got right. And Senna, when you're ready for that, um, we can go there. Uh huh. <laughs> but I can here's tell you the right thing: now, is that go, go ahead. I don't do that. I, my my, the the editing I do. Um, I'm a beta editor. I will find the grammar mistakes. I will, you know, at least the really strangely overt ones. I will come. I, I will take out the double spacing or the excessive use of commas, the run-on sentences where I'm sitting there trying to figure out exactly how many topics you've shoved into this one sentence, and if it takes up one paragraph or not. You know, um, I don't do that. The, the, you don't do that, trust me. But I've seen somebody do that, and legitimately, oh. it was a character. It was a quirk of the character. Okay, this was a a knight, you know, in all the term, you know, meanings of the term, K N I G H T. He spoke with, you know, and for such and such and such, and and the whole he had a whole paragraph. It was one sentence, and yeah, at the end terrible. of it, no, actually, there was a reason for it. But at the end of it, two other characters looked at each other and said, "Did he breathe?" <laughs> because. <laughs> This was what this guy did, okay? He pulled out the 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 fluffy and wondrous and, and chivalrous knight who will gush over his lady. And that's what he did. But, you know, I, I'm sitting there, I'm wondering, how many times did the author have to rewrite that sentence to make it work? And by the way, it was a professional work, and I remember who it was. So, yeah, good times. I um I'm not Mom a soul a destroyer, idea. Senna, but I am um excessively honest. Um when I uh I would consider it more of an alpha read than a beta read. <laughs> because here's the thing, um if you head hop, I'm gonna point it out. because um, that was actually one uh-huh. of Ladyholder's biggest problems was head hopping. I trimmed it. Oh, I you have. You did. You did a fantastic job. I mean, really, you've done. You've done a great job. Um, I recognize head hopping because I do it, 
and sometimes I do it in fan fiction because it amuses me, and no one's there to tell me I can't. And I'm not allowed <laughs> to do it professionally. Um, another big thing that Lady Holder did that you can see in her original, in her earlier work, is that she would um, do a scene break to change point of view. Yeah, (laughs) it was easier. I had a lot of little scene changes. It was really, you know... But but we helped her. We got her to transition, so she transitions very well. Mm -hmm. But she did that on her own. I just pointed it out, and once I pointed it out, she started to to figure out how to do that on her own. So it wasn't something like I sat her down and told her how to do it. I just told her she was doing it. And once um, she realized she shouldn't be doing it, she figured out how to do her own transitions, and she did a very good job of that. So One of the things that I'm I'm actually contemplating – and I, I figure that if I do, I'm probably going to be somebody's worst fucking nightmare, is going back to school and actually going back for writing courses <laughs> to see exactly what I can do and what I can learn from, from that. Um, I, what I would say I that, about I, that is that um, you can't be taught to be a writer. You're already oh, a writer. No. You can be taught um, to be a technical writer. That isn't the same thing. And I do not recommend technical writing classes for a fiction writer. So, yeah. That would just be confusing. But, you know, um, English classes didn't teach me much other than to realize that I hate English classes. Um, <laughs> I loved English. I, I loved English classes. I, Tech writing I classes in college are um, are not um, ideal for fiction writers. I mean, yes, th- they teach you um, structure and they teach you grammar, which you can read on your own. Um, I don't recommend it as because I, th- I just think it would be a waste of money, unless you're going to get a degree in technical writing. Um, but creative writing courses and um, actually, I think that the best courses a writer can take are actually literature courses, where you dissect mm-hmm. other people's writing. Because you learn yeah, more. Yeah, that's actually what I'm talking about. You know what? The yeah, best we're... exercise you can do as a writer: go to a used bookstore, and this is going to fly against everything you 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 are as a reader. But do this: go to a used bookstore and pick up a couple of romance novels or whatever novel you're um, you're going to use, um, whatever mm-hmm. genre you want to play in, whether it's suspense or um, mystery, and take the book apart. Literally, physically take the book apart and then separate it into sections. As to what it, this is the introduction, this is the climax, this is the end, this is the supposition. And take it apart so that you can physically examine the parts of the book and how it came together. Make notes on it, dissect the book, do a book autopsy. Oh, and you will learn more this, during a book autopsy. That's why I'm telling you go to a used bookstore. Don't go to a regular bookstore and buy one, buy new. Well, no, buy I'm, a new I'm not one. saying that. But what I was going to say is, you know, find somebody who's writing you actually enjoy, and who, you know, you, you don't go get the schlock, okay? Because there's plenty of schlock out there. You want somebody who's actually good, and which you means do, yeah, that, you do. Yeah, the, the certain one who I had the absolute screaming horrors over earlier this this week, that's not one to emulate. <laughs> okay. Um, I would, you know. you know, just go and pick um, 
it depends on what you want to accomplish. If you want to improve your own craft, I would pick um I would pick up a couple of books and figure out which one you like the best when you're reading. If you want to um see what is being published, pick a New York bestseller. Yeah. And take it apart, literally. Do a book autopsy. Figure out the parts of the plot, make yourself a graph, and just separate the book out into its individual parts. And once you know the sum of a book's parts, it makes the creating of a novel so much easier. And some people need that visual demonstration. So don't be afraid to go down to the used bookstore if you can find one in your area or get online and buy one at Pals or whatever or just, you know, and if you can't buy yourself a really cheap paperback from somewhere, um, but don't don't buy a book that's really expensive just to take it apart. Uh, uh-uh. But um, and buy your favorite book that you already have a copy of, but buy one that you're you're, um, you're willing to autopsy, and do a book autopsy. It's the most effective learning tool um, that I've ever deployed, and I did do it in a writing seminar where I went to a used bookstore and I bought like thirty. Um, novels, and I passed them out in the seminar to this uh, undergraduate class, uh-huh. and I told them what I wanted them to do, and they all looked at me like I was crazy. I said, just just do it. Just, here's your exacto knife. And they started doing it, and uh-huh. um, we spent a whole week together, and by the end of it, the professor said that was the most unique and interesting thing she'd ever seen a guest lecturer do, and um, that it was really rewarding because she did it too. <laughs> you know, I'm looking over at my bookshelves, and I'm thinking the authors who who can suck me in, who can make the hours disappear, and I don't notice until I've turned the last page or, you know, my Kindle says you're done. And I'm thinking that, you know, it's, it's people like um, Julie Garwood or um, – and McCaffrey or Mercedes Lackey, you know. Um, it's honestly, another one is David Weber or, you know, um, John Ringo has done it to me a couple times. Um, Eric, it doesn't have to one. be a you book. Know, I'm, I'm you could go online and um, take a piece of um, mm-hmm. fan fiction, a, a completed one um, that demonstrates mm-hmm. that whole scale and take it apart in digital files. I don't think you learn as much unless you put your hands on it. That's just the way I am. Uh-huh. And um, it was actually one of my most rewarding teaching experiences because uh-huh. they, they really got into it. And um, this one girl, she she did her book, and she had her little sections, and then she had a stack of pages left. And I said, what's all this stuff? She said, crap, that shouldn't have been in the book. <laughs> and it was great because she had she said that she really learned something about um the structure of the book that she'd taken apart, and um, she um, she removed an entire subplot because it wasn't necessary. No. Nope. And she said that she, that, actually, that, that that was a lesson she was going to take with her because she had um, she had firmly believed that uh, the uh, the subplot was required, but it really wasn't. And once she took it apart and recognized it for what it was, um, she knew that it wasn't necessarily it, it wasn't necessary to the story, and it did not. By the way. Impact the main that plot. Was the, so. That was the lesson I got handed home. Was what? the subplot I put in. <laughs> it wasn't. It's nice. 
all right, if it had been fan fiction, I wouldn't have had a problem leaving it in. But it's not. Right. You know? And so, yeah. You know, it's it's off it goes. Um, some of the big... Some of the big names um, do stick in what feel like unnecessary um, subplots. Uh, J.D. Robb and Eve Dallas's cat. All right. He could have been an unnecessary plot device, but over the years and the books, he's proven to be a very necessary plot device. You know, oh well, you know he, he saved her life several times. That you know, was helped save that her was his, that that was his introduction um, into the series. Mm-hmm. He saved her life. That's why she called yeah. him Galahad because she yeah. saved him um, because um, he saved her life. And he, mm-hmm. and he does it again in in New in New York to Dallas. Cool. So yeah, you know, but, but yeah, it, that's it, actually uh, yeah. But it's a point where. You know, there is a long-term goal that um, the author had that nobody else knew of, really. And, you know, the the um, the character in question, we didn't know he was going to be, you know, useful for anything. I mean, he, he's a cat. You know, what is, what is she going to do with this cat? You know, so it made a difference, and we didn't know. But, you know, it, in the first book, if I had to have that list of... of um, uh, unnecessary subplots. I might have stuck the cat in it. Yeah. Oh, and you know, I Tom see. I, you know what I You know what I consider an unnecessary subplot? Hmm. The Horcruxes. Yes. And Why no. did she call because it Harry Potter? Um, um, Harry Potter: The Deathly Hallows. Did we need oh, both? Yeah. Because the Horcruxes creates this huge plot hole, and we were discussing it on Facebook earlier this week. Mm-hmm. Um, if Lily's sacrifice installed in Harry so much protection that touching him burned Cromort mm-hmm. alive, how the fuck did a Horcrux survive in his scar? Any length of time. How was he able to hold the locket? How was he able to hold and interact with the diary? Good the diary question. should have burned to ash the moment he put his hands on it. Yep. How the fuck did they get out of the cemetery alive? Because the moment his blood and... Um, Voldemort's humiclus, whatever it was, made contact, that mm-hmm. potion should have exploded. <laughs> so all the Horcruxes did was create a ginormous, humongous plot hole in the entire mm-hmm. series. Oh, yeah. Exactly, Claire. How did the blood work? The, the blood wards ward to protect Harry when Tom Riddle was in the house with Harry the entire time. Mm-hmm. Yep. In his fucking scar. So all, she could have jumped the Horcrux out completely and never mentioned them mm-hmm. and just had the Deathly Hallows be the key to destroying Voldemort for once and for all. 
So I believe I that the Horcruxes this? were an unnecessary subplot. I mean, it should. I, it we probably have because it bothers the shit out of me. Well, no, I was thinking about it. you and I talked about it as far as the fact that Harry grows up to be a sweet and lovely and blah blah blah, and he's just sweetness and light and all that's nice and. You and I had problems with that, um, and I think we commented that to the to the tune of you know, given his family situation, he should have grown up to be the darkest blighter on the planet. He should have made Tom look like you know, peaches and cream. Hey, Claire says this. She needed a reason for Harry to kill himself and didn't think it through properly. She certainly didn't because when she made Harry commit suicide, and that's what he does, she turned. Dumbledore into the villain of the entire series because it makes mm-hmm. everything he ever did be grooming. He groomed Harry from minute one to kill himself. Yeah, that's just horrific. She makes Dumbledore a villain in that moment mm-hmm. because suddenly yep. Harry growing up in an abusive or at least emotionally abusive household, makes so much sense. And while Dumbledore allowed it, and while the Order of the Phoenix lingered out in the backyard and let it happen. And why he brought the Philosopher's Stone into the school to groom Harry, and why he had the, and why he didn't cancel the tournament and why he didn't have wards to protect the school from fucking trolls i mean it just everything in that moment in that moment in the harry potter series every single thing that dumbledore did became evil when just before Uh he might have just been an ambiguous old absent-minded codger he becomes a dark lord because then you know that he groomed harry from the moment his mother was murdered until he himself steps out and lets Voldemort kill him without a Mm -hmm. single token fight that Dumbledore groomed him to suicide. And that makes Dumbledore worse than Voldemort. I allude to it in um, the one that that I'm writing for, um, for the Rough Trade. You know, because it's um, it's hinted at in the fact that the wards are missing all sorts of things. That so much is is being allowed to come through, and nobody nobody did anything. You know, and it's um, yeah, everybody hates Umbridge, uh, Senna. It's that's pretty much a given. Um, Umbridge is but, actually easier to hate than Voldemort and Dumbledore combined because she's one-dimensional. Uh-huh. Oh, very. She was designed to be exactly what she was. Because you can see Voldemort's um, character evolve um, growing up in an orphanage, being abandoned by his father, his mother dying um, shortly after his birth. You know, These circumstances create a villain, yes, but part of you can almost sympathize with him because of the way he was treated as a child. Mm-hmm. And Dumbledore, his, his, his villainy is um, easier to see because you know that 
uh-huh. of of his sister's accidental death and how that happened and the muggles and what the muggles did to his sister and all these things. And so you see that in his background, too, in his childhood. But you don't know what made Umbridge the way she is. So she, because uh-huh. and because she's so one dimensional, it's so easy to hate her. I wanted the Umbridge to die, but Voldemort could have gone to Azkaban. He could have spent the rest of his life in a prison cell for all I care. I didn't care. But Umbridge, I wanted that bitch to die. <laughs> I think we all did, and and we're all very very happy when you know when when she got her comeuppance. Yeah. Um, uh, original Tiffin says it didn't start um, after James was killed, was, was killed. It started before that. But it really didn't, not for Harry personally. It, it wasn't about Harry personally until he survived the killing curse. Because up until that point, it could have been Neville or Harry. She had a choice between two children. And, and both no families guarantee. were in hiding. Yep. So while he was manipulating the situation, he wasn't manipulating people. He put both families in in hiding, but once Voldemort did what he did and Harry survived the killing curse, it became all about Harry. Now, Mm -hmm. if you take out the Horcruxes and Harry's eventual suicide, you turn Dumbledore into a high-minded, probably borderline... I'm too old to be doing this shit. I could have a little bit of a problem uh-huh. with dementia. Um, doddering old fool. But when you put the Horcruxes in and you know that Harry went into that house with evil literally leaking out of his of his scar and Dumbledore didn't notice and he was abandoned on a doorstep and even McGonkle didn't say anything about that. Um, and... Um, then you see him being groomed year after year after year to suicide. That's when Dumbledore becomes an arrogant, evil bastard. And it's all J.K. Rowling's fault. By inserting that whole Horcrux business, which I honestly don't think she originally planned, because if she had, um, it wouldn't have... I think that she would have had to make some concessions, at least in book two, with the diary. Uh-huh. Um. Because it doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. Because if Quirrell, if if Quirrell Mort didn't survive touching Harry, then Harry uh-huh. should not have been able to pick up the diary. He most certainly should not have been able to write in it. He should not have been able to hold the locket. There's a lot of things he shouldn't have been able to do, and yet so did. she created a pl- this humongous plot hole. Uh-huh. I think that if the Horcrux had been there the entire time, that Harry would not have been able to get out of that situation with Quirrell in the first book by burning him alive. It would have had to have been a different circumstance because the blood protection shouldn't have worked for somebody who was on the inside. Right, right. So I don't know. It's just it seems like there's 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 this humongous plot hole here. And the thing is, is yeah, she can give you an explanation now, but an explanation after the fact doesn't change the fact that she dropped the ball. It's a plot hole. You know, one of the it's always other, going to be a plot hole. 
Yeah. You, you can't plug the other publication. Well, uh, yeah. One of the other things is is the um, uh, Tom of um, book two. No, pardon me. Yeah, Tom of book two was much more. Frankly, of the, of all the Voldemorts, he was the sanest of the group. You know, and that's that's a disturbing thing to realize that he, out of all of them, was literally the sanest. I mean, talk about that's just not cool. Original Tempest says Dumbledore knew the prophecy when he sent James and Lily into hiding. He knew their kid was the one talked about the prophecy. No, he didn't. He sent James, Lily, Alice, and Frank into hiding because it could either mm-hmm. be Neville or Harry, and he didn't know which one it was. And he didn't know which one it was until Harry survived the killing curse. And that's when he knew that the prophecy was about Harry. Well, that's also because uh, Voldy actually went there. If Voldy had gone first to Neville and then to Harry, you know, what what would have been the answer to that? Well, Neville wouldn't have survived because he wasn't the one. Um, And then it would have been all about Harry. Isn't that a movie? Um... Yes. Or is that all about Eve? Um, yeah. But yeah, that's the point. That's the point that you make there is that um, Voldemort that, um, that Voldemort chose to go to Harry first, probably because um, Harry was a half blood like, um, like himself, and mm-hmm. also because he had pedigree pedigree telling him where Harry was. Mhm. And it was so a, Wormtail a told softer target. Right. And then the Death Eaters, who told the Death Eaters the secret of where the Longbottoms were? Mm-hmm. Who knew that secret? There's a question. And, and who, who was their secret keeper? That's a question. It's never brought up. Nope. Didn't you hit on, hit on that one briefly? I don't know I think I ever have, but I, but I probably want to next time. Here's something mm-hmm. um, Claire is saying that I don't think is necessarily true. She's saying that because all people in the order were defying Voldemort, and there were only two children born at the end of July, but they weren't the only ones defying Voldemort. Voldemort is in his, how old is he, in his 50s and the 70s? So mm-hmm. they aren't the first person or the second person to defy him, to say no, and we're not going to do this. And Harry and Neville aren't the only children born in July. Oh, right, she's being sarcastic. They're just the only one. Okay. We're on the same page, Claire. They're just the only one um, born that July. That July. But it could have been any July, before or after. Mm-hmm. Isn't that in, Fact uh, the matter is, in one of those? Is it, wouldn't it be more interesting if Harry wasn't the one the prophecy was talking about? Like, what mm-hmm. if it was for his son? Yeah, and that's actually one what of What if those, it was uh, Harry's a, uh, son Is that who's the prophecy is mm-hmm. about? And Harry survives because he has to live long enough to um, father the child. Mm-hmm. There's a If anybody's got money, I'm story. not sorry. Huh? Yeah. There's actually a story about that where um, it's not Harry, it's uh, it's somebody else in the whole thing. And I used that whole idea shamelessly and without a problem in, um, in the one that I'm writing with the Immortality Challenge because um, Lucius hears the prophecy and 
the he frankly he induced his child to be born early. So he was not born at the end of July when the seventh month the seventh month dies. It could be almost, I mean, you know, the thing is, is that the the prophecy, like, um, I don't know who says it in canon, it's a woolly business. It, the, the whole thing, the whole mm-hmm. thing is bullshit. You can tear the prophecy apart with logic, mm-hmm. but magical people don't seem to have logic. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> that's you sacrifice logic to have magic. I would make that sacrifice, I have to admit. Oh, yeah, I'd love a house of... You know, but what I, I guess the, the reason I did that, aside from from who I I picked to be, you know, the reincarnated versions of, I wanted the the whole possibility of um, my my duo was to be born within hours of each other, and yet somebody decided to play fast and loose with with you know um, with fate, so. That was that was something I put in, just because I could. Well, you could do anything you want to in fan fiction. Yes, and isn't that great? It's lovely. I've been reading in NCIS. Um, I don't I'm know sorry. why. I don't know. I've only tried to get you into that for years. I know, right? And then just uh, suddenly I'm just over here reading, and I've and it started out with Ziva bashing fix, which I know you guys saw on. Um, Minion headquarters and fa- on Facebook I when I was asking you. for those, and then I did um, Dead Air Fix, which is pretty much a oh Jesus super, um, yeah. and uh, now I read a really awesome one today where um, Tony went to Hawaii and ended up with Steve McGarrett, and that was hot. <laughs> mhm. Yes, that is. <laughs> I would totally write that pairing. If I wrote NCIS, it would be Tony Dinozo slash Steve McGarrett. I totally, I totally ship that. I ship the fuck out of that. Let you know they're in the same universe. Yeah, legit and canon. They are in the same universe, and they're in the same universe, tied by NCIS LA, which connects over to the the um, Hawaii Five O universe. Right, so, so yeah, it's totally possible that Tony and Steve could meet yes. and hook up. And if I write um, NCIS, it's going to be a crossover with Hawaii Five-0, because I would totally, I ship the fuck out of that. I really do. Okay, hey, we, we've got how much time left? We've got 12 minutes. You want 12 to, minutes. Do you want to plot? Okay, I'll say. So Jenny Shepard wants to get rid of Tony. That's why she offers him the Roto position, but he turns it down. And so she keeps mm-hmm. offering them him these jobs and treating him like shit in the alternate. So he realizes no, that she like wants shit. to get rid of him. Ziva, she's encouraging Ziva and Tim to treat him like shit. And Gibbs is, is still not enough there to be able to crack down on everything. Her hands are clean. Put quotes on that clean. Okay. I buy that. Okay, because so yeah, she because, offers him Pearl, and he's like, mm-hmm. at the Back point where go. he's fed up with Ziva and Tim, and he's thinking to himself, she wants to get rid of me, so I'm going to let her, because Gibbs isn't backing mm-hmm. me up, 
and Tim's an asshole and Zeba's a bitch, so I'm going to go to Hawaii. And he goes to Hawaii, and he's there for a few months, and he gets settled, and he's the team lead, and um, he has a small office, but they're really fun, and um, he's having a good uh-huh. time, and he gets a him. Um, he catches a case, and um, it crosses over, and he meets Steve McGarrett. Uh-huh. He's heard about him because, you know, who hasn't heard about the island's, you know, badass cop, but, you know, it's not something that, um, yeah, he's heard of him, but he hasn't had a reason to go after him because Steve is handling civilian and international stuff. He's not handling military-dependent stuff, which is a different thing. Okay. And honestly, I think Tony would be incredibly amused with Dano. You know, which, you know, honestly, let, let me just put this out and say, please, 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 can we have your first threesome, you know, Tony, no. Steve, Look, Dano, I'm going to tell you something. On. I'm going to tell you pretty. something. I'm going to tell you something, and um, this is straight up. If I wrote a threesome, it would be um, Kono, Steve, and uh, Tony. Um, okay. Because um, here's the thing. I think three dicks is one dick too many. <laughs> okay, fine. But it'd still be so pretty. I mean, I'm just saying. And also, I no longer ship Steve and Danny. I'll read it occasionally, and I read Senna's stuff, but I don't ship Tony and Danny anymore. I'm, I'm Steve and Danny anymore, because I think Danny's a fucking asshole. Okay. And... He slept with his married ex-wife, and uh, yeah, this is where I don't watch the show, and it comes to bite me because I'm not looking at it like that. I'm just looking at the actors going, "Oh, they're so pretty." Yeah, I have a real problem with his hairstyle too. Just to let you know, I have a real problem with Danny's hairstyle. I I don't like it. I don't like his hair. They they need to cut his fucking hair. Okay, it's 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 been years. (laughs) They need to cut his hair. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so getting back to the rest of it. So we've got, you know, what's what's the But no, what's I would just write, than... um, I don't really like writing threesomes, to be honest. I mean, I've tried, and I don't, I don't do very well. I mean, I've really tried, um, and I think it's because I'm really a romantic at heart, and I believe that when you love, that you should give your love to that one person, and um, trying to split it romantically is, is difficult. And there's mm-hmm. going to be an, there's going to be an, in a, in a, there's going to be, it isn't going to be equal. There's going to be, I don't know. I just, mm-hmm. I just can't do it. I just, I don't, I don't have the. Uh, three, threesomes for just no. sex, yes. Threesomes for a romance, no. I just, I just, I just can't get my, my, my mind around it. Well, you promised me years ago also a, um, a McKay Shepherd and Nico also. Well, yeah, that, I mean, probably, I just, I tried to write that, and I, I'm having a problem. I'm just, I'm, I'm having a problem with the emotional connection. Well, um, my, my idea was that they were um, by themselves, and um, they uh, decided to try to make sure the ancient gene um, stays strong in their population so they're encouraging gene carriers to to marry and there aren't a lot of women, there aren't a lot of women on the um the city and they're cut off from earth and so um 
they asked the women on the city to make connections with at least two men. Uh-huh. And John and Rodney get approached separately by different people, but not together. And they aren't together in a relationship. They're just friends um, when it starts in my head. And, um, like, Elizabeth asked John, but she didn't ask Rodney, um, that kind of thing. And, you know, so it, it keeps going around. They keep telling everybody no. And, then, and neither one of them really know why they're saying no. They just are. And then one night, Miko comes to Rodney's quarters while they're watching movies, and um, she asks them both. And they don't even look at each other. They just say yes at the same time to her. Um, mm-hmm. And so they – and then um, Miko kind of just kind of just takes over. You know, she mm-hmm. she moves them and gets them all situated, and then like the first <laughs> night, um, they're wondering which one of them is going to end up, you know, in the in the master bedroom, and that's when they mm-hmm. realize there's only one bedroom. Because <laughs> uh-huh. she, she, she turned the other bedroom into office space for mm-hmm. the three of them, and there's just one room with a big bed, and um, that, that that that's when they realize that when she asked them together, she really meant. I'm asking you together mm-hmm. because I fully expect to sleep with you both at the same time. And so they have to deal with, with their, is she serious? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Moment. And um, so, yeah. So I had it all plotted out in my head, and um, but it just it just never came down on page the way, the way I wanted it to. Okay. Well, you know, now I'm really tempted. So... Let's see where things roll. Um, Bilbo, Phil, and Dwalin. Uh, Again, there becomes that issue of equality, and um, Mm -hmm. they're not um, having that connection with with Bilbo because they've been together for decades, and, you know, they've been together longer than Bilbo's been alive, right? So it it, it becomes an issue. Uh Uh-huh. Um. But I do have a problem with the inequality that uh, happens in, in threesome relationships sometimes, and so I'm having a problem putting that down on paper and um, and organizing it in such a way that it's not um, John and Rodney and then Rodney and Miko and then John and Miko. It's John, Rodney, and Miko. Because mm-hmm. um, writing it as separate relationships doesn't work because it starts to look like cheating. You know. True. It's 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 not something that is an easy um, connection. You actually do. being married to one person is enough work. Thanks. You know, I'll I'll be totally is. realistic on that. Um, being married to more than one person, um, I don't know. It, it's it's um, there's a great deal of of how you would make that work and how. You know how does it how does it uh, how does everybody get together? Because um, I'm thinking of the, the various examples and, and things and and you know real life. Uh, looking at a military and civilian couple, the military member is going to get deployed. They're going to go out and they're going to do, and they're going to defend, and they're not going to be involved in the day to day. And if you have a trio, okay. Um, two of the people, chances are good, are going to be home and they're going to be building a life and all of a sudden they have to slot this third person in. It's bad enough when it's a couple. The hell what you're going to do with the trio? 
you know. So, I, yeah, um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing with it. But I am thinking about it, and I do think about it a lot, because I, I do actually want to write it, because I need to ex- kind of expand my horizons. Um, mm-hmm. And the safest way to do that is in fan fiction. When when you write professionally, and if you expand in a way that um, doesn't work, and you kind of fall on your face with it, there are repercussions. Like if I wrote something and it didn't work the way it was supposed to, it could damage me contractually with, with my publishers. Mm-hmm. But I can do it in fan fiction. I can explore these things in fan fiction. And if I fail, I'm only doing it in front of you guys, and you guys don't um, aren't going to like not contract me and give me more money. <laughs> well, this is true, but you know, I'm I'm thinking about you know for me where I went out of the gate with a trio, you right? Know? And that was an interesting trick. Um. And it's it, it, contracting down to a duo. That's interesting. I wanted to stick a third one in just for convenience. Wow, <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. So we got two and a half minutes. You know. Um, hmm. I, I guess. I guess the whole thing about this is, you know. Uh, I go around with a notebook. I go around with a notebook and pen. I've got my magic pen. I've got my my um, my phone. I've got my tablet that, that the husband got me. Um, I've got all these things that allow me to take down that, that brilliant piece of inspiration that I get when I'm conscious. Uh, when I'm sleeping, I really hope I remember it in the morning. Uh, I try and be creative. I try and make sure that I at least put it aside some time to do it, okay, and for me, it's the written work. We'll do other things, you know, and that's this is this is my outlet. Kira's um, is also the written work. You know, she she has her own notebook. She has sometimes she has me sitting there going, okay, I've got the idea down, and she's going, okay, and um, what did I have to get over in in the meat section again? <laughs> that happens. That happens. Yeah. yeah. You know, I should just add um, her to my grocery list um app so she can like push it on there for me. <laughs> Diet Coke and apple turnovers. <laughs> exactly. That's what yes, I live on people, um, apples and Yes. You know, and there there's all these little things that, that make it um you know even if even if it's just you know, it's hundred word grapples that you stitch together and all of a sudden you've got a, you know, 20-page stories and you feel like you're cheating because you stitched. You didn't cheat. You made it work. You took your, your, your strengths and turned it into something fantastic. And that's all we ever want to do. And on that do. note, we have to go. Right, right yeah. Okay. We, we're going to like 26 yeah. seconds. You guys have a great weekend. Don't forget to lose. No and no after mouth. mouth. Shut up and sit down. humans on earth can't all like the same drink that's why circle k has polar pop and froster pick your flavors and make that one in seven billion mix just right for you 
Polar Pop and Froster, just 79 cents each at Circle K. Limited time only at participating locations.